0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine inviting the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks. The weekend is officially here. Time to forget what divides us
2: and have a barbecue! Here's the Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton. It's 980 CFPL in London. Great to have you aboard. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, it's Hamilton today. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. You can send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 uh, on your cell. Lots going on today, but not really lots going on. Um, uh, we're starting to uh, obviously hear more and more about healthcare. We're going to play you some clips about that coming up uh, in just a sec. And, of course, the infamous bee swallowing, uh, which, uh, you know, you'll be hearing a lot over the course of the next day or so, and certainly on this show. Uh, so, uh <laughs> Uh, Doug Ford asked, uh, answering questions in regard to the healthcare system. We'll come back to that. Uh, also, uh, teachers unions now talking about a strike vote, uh, as the saber rattling starts there as well. QP says it's looking for an 11% raise. Wow, aren't we all? Uh, so we'll see how things pan out in a post-pandemic uh, world. Also, more evidence on the Emergency Act as that inquiry continues as to whether it was needed or not. And just to end up all the fun, gas prices are up again, uh, going up $0.08 cents, uh, tonight. So there you go. Uh, feel free to uh, enjoy the fun and wallow in it all. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are uh, throughout the course of the show. But anyway, uh, as we have chatted and uh, been chatting since pretty much last weekend when... Ah, uh, the long weekend, the August long weekend hit, and uh, there were uh, situations where emergency rooms, uh, 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 some emergency rooms closed, staff shortages. Uh, the whole nine yards in just obviously a burnt-out health system a burnt-out healthcare system burnt out healthcare bur- care workers uh, and you know um, trying to get some time off and, and, and such there's the, the backlogs continue uh, which again was something that we promised we were going to discuss during the global pandemic and it appears that uh, here we are we're you know barking up the same tree when people are trying to come up with uh, innovative options or everything on the table or figure out what works best. Uh, everybody starts scr- screaming and yelling from their own podiums as to what's best for them. And once again, the healthcare system gets left behind, uh, and, and, lost in whatever interest, um, is, is being taken forth by whatever groups. Uh, here's what the premier had to say, uh, earlier today in regard to healthcare and where we are moving
3: forward. Okay, so if you go into a public hospital currently, everything from the moment you walk in to the moment you walk out is paid for with the exception of your Tim Hortons bill and your parking. That includes uh, your medication, that includes your hospital stay, that includes your surgery as well. If you move into a private system, can you guarantee that other than the OHIP-delivered service, that is the surgery itself, can you guarantee that uh, the stay in the hospital, the food, the medication will all be covered by OHIP if it's moved? Into a private system. Yeah, thanks for
4: the question, Colin. One, 100% it's going to be covered. We're never going to waver from that. Are, are we going to get creative? Absolutely. As I, as I mentioned, um, we, we just can't, as a province, keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. It, it's, it's just not happening. You look at places that have been around forever, Shoulder Dice. You know, you have a hernia issue, you're going to shoulder Dice. <laughs> Uh, cataracts, I think there's a place downtown, you can go there. But it's, again, it's paid through OHIP. If there's a way of uh, delivering better publicly funded uh, health care, uh, we're, we're going to do it. We're going to make sure it works. And, and again, it's going to be the healthcare care sector that's going to be telling us uh, how to deliver it, not the government telling the healthcare care sector uh, how to deliver it.
2: Uh, so there you have it, uh, Colin DeMello from Global News asking the premier the question, because we've been hearing this, you know, it's all of a sudden gonna become credit card, uh, Medicare, and, and, and again, once again, these are extremists. Uh, you know, looking at or comparing it to a U.S. system or, or, or whatever the worst scenario is down there and translating it up here. This has already been going on. And what they're talking about is using other facilities, whether they're private or not, to get rid of some of the backlogs. It doesn't mean you're paying them. The government still pays them. So, again, where this all started, well, you know where it started, hysteria and people screaming and, and yelling about the United States. By the way, in the United States, 92%, 92% of Americans have health care without the system that we have. So, again, um, y- you know, y- you want to compare stats, compare that one. But at no time did anybody ever say that, oh, that's it, you got to throw down your health care if you're having a heart attack. Again, what we're trying to do here, I think what government is trying to do, I think what frustrated citizens are trying to do, is get this system fixed. We're tired of special interests, we're tired of the people that have, you know, uh, ties to organizations within Ontario dictating the way that the health care system works. We've got to come up with a system that is sustainable, we pay some of the high healthcare care costs in the free world yet we're having the problems that we're having and hiding and boasting behind well it's universal well whoop de doo again 92% of those in the United States are covered so there's other ways to do things and nobody says that that is the answer but there certainly is a happy medium but again we're having the discussion on the fringes on the extremes if we give up this oh my god we're going backwards well, putting the same old provincial band-aid on that you know uh, McGinty put on it, that uh, that uh, uh, Win put on it, that Harris put on it, that ain't working. Yet when they come up with new ideas, oh, we can't do that. Well, where do you go? Here's the clip of the bee swallowing to liven it all up. It's coming from the health sector.
4: <laughs> Holy Christ! What was that? I just swallowed a bee. Oh my God! Oh, Christ! I knew that little bugger. <laughs> you okay? I'm good he's down here buzzing around right now he has a lot of he has a lot of real estate now if that was not the clip okay this is going to be replayed over and over again and that just made colin de mello's day he's going to be laughing all the way back to the scene i've already it. holy christ he's, he's wedged in my throat sorry guys a little bugger got away in there take a second no i'm okay he's buzzing in there
2: there you go the clip of the day and Carlo Demello gets a shout out you gotta like it All right. uh, As we go through a global pandemic, there's some cool things that have come out of this and some uh, great initiatives that are continuing on. A lot of them centered around the hospitality business and and how they have done things. And uh, here's another great idea which uh, helps people in the hammer. It's called Too Good to Go. Officially launched its services in the Hamilton area this week, connecting people with local businesses with surplus food items at a fraction of the original price. uh, To find out how it all works. Let's bring in Sarah Suderoff, PR manager for Too Good To Go and is with us now. Sarah, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
5: I'm very well, Scott. Thank you so much for having me.
2: So first, explain what this is, how it all works.
5: Yeah, it is a really cool concept. We launched in Canada last year in July, so we've just celebrated our one-year anniversary. And what we do is we connect businesses, local food selling businesses with consumers to sell that food at the end of the day at one-third the cost. So typically you might see a bakery has leftover croissants. They might have three to five croissants and they can't sell those again the next day. So in the past, they've just thrown that out, which means they lose that money on that um, croissant that they're throwing out. And they also are... Adding to the waste, the food waste that we contribute, almost 58% of which goes to waste in this country. So, what we're doing is connecting, we're kind of adding that gap. So, we're connecting businesses to those consumers on the app. They can purchase food at one third the cost, and then that food doesn't go to waste, and consumers can get really great food for cheaper.
2: How did you come up with this idea? And it seems like you've got quite a big footprint already.
5: Yeah, I'd love to take credit for it. I can't. Um, We were founded in Denmark actually in 2016 and we're in 16 markets across Europe. So the model has proven to be super successful in Europe. We came to the US in 2020 and then Canada in 2021. And the idea really came from seeing the egregious amount of waste that goes on at every level so even if you think of kind of the waste that you have in your home you know we always buy like a ton of lettuce and then we don't get to it and we end up throwing it out so what our founders did was they thought about what's the way that we can help food businesses limit that waste because no one wants to have it and there just hasn't been a great mechanism for getting it in the hands of people who do want it
2: does there seem to be more of an interest in this now has the global pandemic changed interest in this
5: We launched during the pandemic. So right now, um, I think we're seeing, and we had only launched in Toronto at that time. We're now in seven markets across Canada with Hamilton coming this week. We're really excited. And um, we're definitely seeing a consistency of interest from consumers and from businesses signing up. So we add new businesses every day because we'll go into new markets, businesses and markets where we exist, will add on to, and we're always getting new consumers. So I think. We can, we can say safely that there is a consistency in terms of those who are interested in using it. And kind of once you use it, once you you get more used to it, and so then you want to use it again because you want to check out new restaurants, you want to go back to your favorite. Um, and we're seeing in Europe definitely where they existed before the pandemic, there has definitely been an uptick in consumer interest and business interest due to the pandemic.
2: So is this mostly hospitality? Is it grocery stores? Who's using the, who, who is supplying the service?
5: It's everything. It can be a corner store that sells, you know, chips and chocolate bars. It can be mm. a restaurant food selling business at every level because there is waste at every level. So even if you have only one or two items, you can still put those into a bag. Um, your val- the value of the bag could be lower, and then the consumer pays one third of that. So for example, if you purchase a bag bag for five ninety nine, you're getting eighteen dollars worth of food in that bag. Um, and so they could put, you know, if they had one or two croissants and then a couple of other items, maybe you know, some cookies or something like that, that could go in there. We also have a number of prepared food bags. So grocery stores tend to have more grocery items. And then we'll see some restaurants and other, you know, kind of um, grocery stores that have prepared food, will put in prepared food items as well, which is really nice.
2: And who is purchasing?
5: Anyone, all Canadians, anyone with the app.
2: So it covers uh, all, all, all demographics, all yeah. uh, classes of people. It's not just necessarily yeah. people who are looking for cheap food, I guess is the question.
5: No, I mean, definitely, that's a great option for people who are looking for less expensive food and and a way to lower their bills. I always say the greatest option is before you go grocery shopping, go pick up a grocery bag from one of your two good to go partners, see what's in there, and then help to supplement what you bought in your bag, which is a surprise with what you buy at the grocery store. So say you get a head of lettuce and three tomatoes and a couple potatoes, you know, you can make a meal out of that, you just need to go to the grocery store and maybe get a chicken or, you know, get something else to add into your salad. And so it's a nice way to be able to get a lot of those staples without having to pay full price for them but we do see that our consumer demographic is everyone um i live in downtown toronto and i love the app and i love you know opening it up in my neighborhood and seeing what's available there and i'll check out different restaurants if i haven't tried one it's a really good way to try a new restaurant and then it's also nice to be able to frequent and and help to support my local favorite businesses as well
2: so tell t- tell everybody what's happening in Hamilton and, and how it's starting here.
5: Mm-hmm. So we launched today or yesterday officially. We are now. Um really rolling out throughout the city we've got over 35 partners adding more every day we have some awesome partners mamaco donuts the ottawa market goodness me vintage coffee roasters the hardy hooligan and tons others so it's awesome there's a great selection we have vegan options we have vegetarian options um and it's a it's a really nice way to be able to try out local restaurants you know, frequent your favorite local, your local favorites. And it's also a really nice way, um, you know, if you're kind of like out and about at the end of the day, and you're getting that craving, open up the app, check it out, and then see what's around you. And you can pick up in the window that they've specified.
2: What a great idea. Too good to ca. Sarah Sudaroff with us, PR manager for Too Good To Go, now available in Hamilton. Sarah, thanks for the time. Good luck.
5: Thank you so much.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: All right. We've been talking a lot of late, uh, certainly post pandemic or wherever we are in it, uh, about the price of everything going up, including, um, you know, housing, uh, fuel, energy, groceries. Uh, and so on and so forth. Obviously, uh, seeing high I- inflation rates as a result of that. Now, uh, how much does this cost as we move forward? Uh, City of Hamilton talking about how it might need a 6.9% property tax bump in 2023 just to keep going. Uh, where do we keep going or how do we keep going? And are we just to assume that everything is going to go up? Let's bring in Michael Veal, Professor of Economics, McMaster University, Academic Director 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 of Stats Canada Research Data Centre, and with us now, Michael, thanks for the time as always. Hope you're doing well. I am. Hope you are too. Thanks so much. So far, so good. So, Michael, are we just to assume that everything is going to go up uh, just simply because of where we are coming out of this global pandemic, taxes, uh, city taxes as well?
6: Well, pretty much. I think it's fair to say that The inflation rate will probably ease if we don't have another crisis. For example, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine was a crisis that, among other things, affected the inflation rate. Uh, But if without another crisis, I think we expect the inflation rate to ease, but it's not going to ease very quickly.
2: So what does that mean for the short term? Are we going to see things um, slowly creep up? We've seen some relief in gas prices, although they are jumping back up uh, this weekend. Is that the sort of ride we're going to be on for a while?
6: Yeah, I think we expected, uh, with the decline in world oil prices that we did expect some decline in gasoline prices. We've got that. It, it's going to bump around. Everything's volatile. Everything's uncertain. Uh, when we talk about the, the tax, the municipal taxes, of course, the municipalities having, uh, Price increases, too, in the things that it purchases. And so it's the sort of thing that gets fed through eventually uh, down to the taxpayer, to the citizens of Hamilton. Um, I do think that one of the big things we have to worry about is thinking about that budget, is that almost every collective agreement for the city of Hamilton uh, is coming up this December. Um, And, of course, what the inflation rate is looking like then will be really important in determining what those wage increases look like going forward.
2: Uh, you bring up a very valid point. Uh, obviously, there's rumblings about uh, teachers' unions and the government, provincial government, on moving forward and trying to get all the kids uh, in school uh, for September. There's contract negotiations going on there. I saw a headline today, QP seek, uh, seeking an 11% uh, percent raise. Boy, um, everybody's asking for a raise, and you can certainly see why with inflation at uh, where it is. Uh, what will this do for inflation?
6: Well, that sort of thing will feed through into inflation, Uh, not just, of course, public sector increases that feed through into our taxes, but uh, increases in the private sector all around. Uh, That would be, it would be very useful if the inflation rate would fall more quickly and that would ease that kind of pressure. Uh, I don't think it's going to fall very quickly, but I do think over time it will be much more reasonable than its current uh, inflation rate of, say, roughly 8% now. What about
2: supply chains? How much of a factor are they playing at this point, Michael?
6: I think their effect was important earlier. I think that effect is weakening. Uh, the economy, in its uh, collective sense, is very creative. And so when there's a blockage one place, uh, it works a way around it. And gradually, that tends to take away the worst effects of supply chain interruptions, uh, but it doesn't take them away entirely. Um, And so uh, at one level, you know, the oil price increase can be regarded as a sort of a massive supply chain effect because of the uh, reduction in world oil supplies that was available to the market. Um, Gradually, that's being eased, but it's very gradual. Uh,
2: How concerned are you with the tensions around Taiwan considering uh, the role they play in chip manufacturing in the world?
6: So I'm not an expert on, on the geopolitical aspects of, uh, you know, whether there will be at worst case, even hostilities there. Uh, but, uh, clearly that would be a disruption. Um, I think as long as there isn't a really overt disruption and I, what I read suggests that that's unlikely, uh, that probably will not affect the chip market. Um, and that will continue, uh, be- because, um, worst case, except for actual hostilities would be some sort of disruption in trade and and chips are, are things that can be taken out by air transit and so that's a very unlikely I think block blockade to occur
2: you were talking about conflict, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It seems to be just dragging on and dragging on. Not a lot of gains, not a lot of movement. Um, uh, pretty much where it is. Uh, how does how how does the rest of the world view that? What does that mean for the future, especially with winter coming and energy a concern in Europe?
6: Well, you'll you'll have read about the problems there. Obviously, uh, there will be problems in in Europe particularly apparently with natural gas. Um, I think probably the worst case has been averted. One of the things that tends to happen, it's its strange during a time of war, but people do make accommodations and, and figure out ways. So for example, uh, Ukraine is now shipping grain. Uh, didn't think that was going to happen, uh, but even during the war, the the two countries have have managed to cooperate to ship some of these products out. I don't minimize the situation in Ukraine, but in terms of the impact it has on the rest of the world, including us, it's probably going to be less than we would have guessed a few months ago
2: all right bringing this back to the local level obviously costs everywhere going up and as you uh, suggested earlier cities no different they pay more for everything as well the ki- uh, the cost of energy the cost of fuel uh, the cost of supplies whatever it needs all those services are going up as well how do cities balance this because we know uh, well especially with elections uh, municipally around the corner and you know with with inflation sitting at what it is and, and people looking at double-digit increases and such that's going to make quite an impact how do cities deal with this
6: well if past experience uh, holds again we will probably expect a smaller residential property tax increase than the Um, 6.9 percent last year for example i think the number that was proposed at this stage was a little over four and it came down to 2.8 percent so there will be some softening there Um, a lot as we've discussed will depend on on what's uh, the forecast with respect to uh, wage increases, uh, because those are very important municipal level. Um, uh, yet another problem is that, uh, transit revenues are down. You know, there's less people using public transit. There's less people paying for uh, municipal parking. So those revenues are down as well. So there's a lot of factors going into this. Uh, I suspect what will happen is that there will be a quite substantial tax increase and that will cause the usual hardship that it does for individuals who are, who are, you know, looking for ways to get by.
2: Uh, We're asking for more. Uh, We've got less to do it with. Has anything changed here uh, post-pandemic, or uh, where do you see us coming out of this in the next year?
6: Um, Well, a lot depends on on the sort of job you have and whether you're going to personally get uh, an increase. There will be some people whose wages and incomes will more or less keep up, and there are some will fall. Uh, further behind, and some of those people will be able to afford that and and some won't. So it'll be a very differential effect across uh, the spectrum. Uh, But normally what happens during crises, um, and this is, I don't think, a full-blown crisis, but I do think it's a serious situation, is that there is this kind of differential effect that it's a, a relatively small minority who get hurt, but you have to be concerned about that group.
2: Michael Veal with us, Professor Economics at Master University, uh, everything going up, including possibly your taxes. Uh, how do we get through it all? Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yes, thanks very
7: much. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is
0: Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 cxm
2: There is a inquiry going into the emergency, or into the use of the Emergencies Act, although, uh, it's been pretty much neutered so much it's hard to tell if anything is actually coming out of this. Uh, now we're finding out this new information and again, you know. Uh, on the night before the federal government imposed the Federal Emergencies Act, uh, the Prime Minister's National Security and Intelligence Advisor, Jody Thomas, told Justin Trudeau and the rest of the federal cabinet that there was a potential breakthrough, for a breakthrough, with the protesters. The surprising revelation is contained in a package of cabinet-level documents previously marked secret uh, describing the discussions that took place in February as the cabinet weighed in on how to address a flurry of highly disruptive uh, protests across the country. Let's bring in Duff Conacher, co founder of Democracy Watch with us now Duff thanks for the time hope you're doing well
8: yes thank you very much hope you are as well
2: thanks Duff so your thoughts on how this inquiry has been going are are we ever going to find out things or is it is it just turning into a he said she said
8: pretty much is Um, very surprising to see this cabinet document come out uh, because usually the government just refuses in any court case to disclose cabinet documents and invokes the, uh, convention of, of cabinet confidentiality. The Access Information Act doesn't apply to these kind of minutes, so there's no way to get it through that law, even though it's called the Access Information Act. And it's a widely abused, uh, loophole that allows for excessive government secrecy. And, uh, very surprising to have even this amount of information come out. And the Trudeau cabinet is essentially, uh, refusing to disclose this kind of information and other key uh, information to the parliamentary committee, and we'll likely do the same to the uh, actual commission of inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act.
2: Is getting this much in uh, this much information act about this uh, apparent breakthrough uh, that was uh, that was perhaps in the, in the pipeline? It, it, does that move the needle at all?
8: I think it does. Uh, if the government's not going to disclose anything else, um, then this is pretty damning evidence that they didn't need to do it, that there was a negotiated settlement uh, that was possible, along with all the evidence uh, otherwise that was uh, already on the public record, that um, the police were handling it, were able to remove protesters from one of the blockades of the border, and uh, likely would have been able to remove the blockade in front of Parliament Hill also in the same way, and just a few days later if the government had just waited instead of invoking the act i mean the act was only in place for nine days so if those night the government had just waited for those uh few more days then likely things would have been cleared up by the police using the powers that they already had it was now, really look, just the ottawa police refusing to act so when now was, when they had full power to act that was the now problem.
2: Now, um, uh, liberals are saying that, um, no, this deal that was supposedly the uh, breakthrough deal, it just never happened. That's what happened here. There was no deal. It just fell through.
8: Yeah, of course, they're going to say that. (laughs) The documents proving that uh, will remain hidden. And so, um, unless the government discloses more, I think what we have is this one piece of evidence which makes them. Not look very good, eh, along with again all the other evidence that uh, the Ottawa police could have acted. They they, they had difficulty getting tow trucks, um, but that did not need the emergency act to uh, to be able to get tow trucks in there. The government has tow trucks itself uh, that it uses for major government projects, so they could have used those to remove the the eighteen wheelers that were parked in front of Parliament Hill with their air brakes on. So still more questions, uh, and, and again, a, very surprising to see a cabinet document come out of this uh, whole process of court cases and parliamentary committees and, and uh, the commission of inquiry, because usually the government just refuses to disclose any cabinet documents, but the one that they've disclosed does not make them look good, which makes it even more surprising that it's come out.
2: So is this inquiry, I guess a little information is better than a lot, um, is this inquiry going anywhere? When does this wind up? Are we Have we found out everything we're going to find out?
8: No, I mean, the actual inquiry hasn't even started. Uh, the Parliamentary Committee has been holding hearings, and that is one form of inquiry, but always kind of a kangaroo court. As you see, opposition MPs ignore evidence that goes against making the government look bad and and the government mps ignoring evidence that makes the government look bad so parliamentary committees are useful in that they can call people and people have to show up and testify and they have a right to see any information they want even though the government usually refuses and tries to force them to go to court but they usually get some information out just though in a highly partisan atmosphere uh, of questioning the actual uh commission of inquiry that's required under the emergencies act hasn't even started the commissioner has been appointed handpicked by the government which is a flaw in the system the government shouldn't be able to, to choose its own judge ever and uh is choose, chose its own judge by uh, appointing the person but the person is a member of the court of appeal of ontario and is a, a sitting judge and so they have their reputation to uh be worried about if they tried to cover things up on behalf of the government who handpicked them. But the actual hearings on that commission haven't even started. And the commissions like this shouldn't run for a year. It shouldn't take that long. There's not that many people who were on the inside and knew what was going on. And, and getting them all to testify and hopefully getting even more documents out will be the task of the commission. But again, usually governments just say, no, we're not disclosing those documents and they try to hide any document that will make them look bad.
2: Duff Conagher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch, commenting on the Emergencies Act. New information coming out that uh, a breakthrough was on the way, but the government went through with the Emergencies Act uh, anyway as this ongoing inquiry continues. Duff, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
8: You as well. Take care. Have a great weekend.
2: You too. All right, I want to give you a bit of an update here uh, uh, and talk about Donald Trump and where things have gone in the last uh, 24, 48 hours, because it only seems to have uh, been getting uh, going from bad to worse. But here knows. Uh, who knows? Let's bring in Thane Rosenbaum, a distinguished university professor at Truro College, director of the Forum on Life, Culture and Society, NYU, and legal an- analyst with CBS News Radio. And with us now, Thane, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
1: I am Scott, always great hearing your voice
2: so uh this is very bizarre obviously it started with the raid on uh on his estate donald trump's estate in in florida um, he painting one picture uh all of a sudden officials coming out feeling they needed to paint the real picture uh because donald trump had i guess brought this forward into the public realm and now it's as if all of this is going to uh, be exposed is this just part of the game how to give us a bit of an Update on here on on where we are.
1: Well, Scott, it's not part of the game because, like almost everything with Donald Trump, nothing like this has ever happened before. Hmm. It's never been the case in this in our country where the FBI sought a warrant to search the present premises of a former United States president, um, you know, and that a federal judge signed off on an execrable warrant for that purpose. Uh, and so, no, we, we we're in very very virgin territory um uh, as of uh today uh what we finally got a chance, apparently a glimpse of the actual warrant itself not the affidavit which is much more important um than the warrant but the warrant itself says that uh, the agents are supposed to go in where they're permitted for a certain period of time by the way the warrant was signed 2 weeks before they went in so that raises the question if you had the warrant signed by a federal magistrate 2 weeks earlier and if this was an emergency, why did you wait? Why, if, it, if it had national security implications, what was the holdup? You should just go. Um, but they, they eventually, the warrant said, you know, you're looking for classified information, classified documents, and you're looking for top secret doc, documents, documents that are, uh, that are listed, described that way. The affidavit should have actually identified what exactly they're looking for. And we haven't seen that affidavit because the affidavit would have been given the magistrate the reason to say, OK, here's why I'm going to execute this warrant, because this is what they're looking for. A crime is going to be committed. And unless I give them the authorization to go into the president's home, the evidence could be destroyed or mishandled. We still don't know the answer to that, Scott. We don't know what the information is. We don't know what the we don't know what it was that the magistrate signed off on. And we don't know, more importantly, we don't know what they got, right? So we don't know when they walked out. No one has told us yet what they actually did discover in the House.
2: Uh, Obviously, Donald Trump uh, looks at any publicity as good publicity. Uh, What will we end up seeing, do you think? And where does this, how does this change the discussion?
1: Well, Scott, unless the Justice Department can uh, trump it, you know, the next week or so. Look what we found in the House. Can you believe this? Like last night, the Washington Post said, but there's no confirmation of that today, that this had to do with nuclear secrets. Uh Right? Well, that's unbelievable. What? Nuclear secrets? The president, you know, took that out of the White House and put it in his basement in Florida? Um, So, But that, so far, was not disclosed today. That was not what we learned yet. Um, if such a thing happens, I'm not still not sure it's a crime, but, you know, it definitely colors the impression of, well, why would President Trump do that? Why would he take it? Um, but unless they can actually produce something like this, this is going to, you know, for people who don't like Donald Trump, you gave him another win. You just did. You just galvanized his base. You just made him feel much more uh, vindicated when he says that this is ongoing witch hunt that the Democrats have a hatred of me that is unsurpassable, and they'll do anything, including raid my house, and that has never happened to a former president. They'll say, everyone complained that I wasn't acting presidential. What's presidential about this? Rushing into the house of a former president to go pick up his personal items, rummaging through his own files?
2: So at this point, uh, Thane, it's about waiting and seeing what the next shoe is to drop. In other words, what that information is that really yes. depends.
1: The, the, yeah, Cat Scott, the key thing is we still, the, throughout this entire week, we don't know what it was they were specifically looking for, and we don't know what they specifically found. <laughs>
2: Thane Rosenbaum with us, Distinguished University Professor, Truro College, Director of the Forum on Life, Culture, and Society, NYU, Legal Analyst with CBS Radio. Always a pleasure. Thanks for the time, Thane. Be well. Anytime for you, Scott.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: We remember when the Russian invasion of Ukraine started, uh, many thought that this would be over in a matter of days and uh, Ukraine would w- would just basically roll over. That obviously has not been the case as this uh, war continues to grind on, but we are seeing some glimmers of hope in, in the sense that grain shipments are getting out of uh, Ukraine. Um, we're starting to see things open up. McDonald's reopening in Ukraine. Uh, efforts to clean up uh, certain areas, Uh, turning into impromptu raves there are signs that the situation or or is it stabilizing in ukraine uh, after what they are going through at the hands of russia let's bring in dr arn kislenko margaret mcmillan trinity one international relations program trinity college university of toronto and department of history at toronto metropolitan university and is with us now arn thanks for the time i hope you're well
9: I'm well. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: So give us a bit of an update here, because for a while, this was all the story. These were the headlines. It now seems that Ukraine is still hanging on. Uh, Russia is is not making any more ground than uh, we have seen uh, recently or in the past. Where is this right now?
9: Well, we're, we're in a, a different phase of the war. Obviously, there is now a kind of anticipated, uh, protracted war that's going on. And I think a lot of experts, uh, imagined we got a lot of things wrong, experts about uh, the invasion in the first place. But, but most agreed that we, you would see this phase. And this is because, um, the Russian armed forces did not achieve their objectives. They didn't take out uh, all of Ukraine's uh, military and, and run over the country. Um, and because of those uncertainties, they now have to sort of go to a second tier, which is consolidating a front and trying to occupy the eastern provinces. Uh, but that does not mean that we're in a stable situation. I, I, I kind of take issue with with that, that word. It, it sort of implies that things are normal and there's nothing normal about a war zone. Um, plus, you're dealing with a man that, that very clearly has his own agenda. Uh, And is really unpredictable. He's a volatile character. So that what we now see with the return of McDonald's and some sense of normalcy amongst Ukrainians um, could be quite fleeting, to be honest with you.
2: Uh, at the beginning of all of this, many asked uh, Ukraine to leave, you know, we'll help you, whatever. And obviously the Ukrainian people stood up and, and have heroically defended their land and such to the point where putting Russia on their heels. Is that a signal Russia has lost this? And for lack of a better phrase, why doesn't Russia just go in and finish this? if they are capable of doing so. Is that the question? Yeah.
9: Well, I think your first statement sort of answers the second. The the really tremendous resilience, the spirit and the, and the fighting capacity of the Ukrainians, I think, caught the Russians off guard. And conversely, their own armed forces, I, I just don't think they have even the organizational structure, the leadership or the, the willingness amongst its soldiers uh, to fight this war. Because it's, it's I think, even to, to Russian soldiers, an entirely illegitimate, um, an unnecessary adventure, and I think that's starting to show too. Um, but it, I think it's it's the reason that I'm cautious about sort of you know any optimism is because Russia can ramp things up. They are still bombing, and we, we need to discuss that. They're letting grain shipments go. That's true, uh, but they are still engaging in targeted uh, civilian populations. There's more and more allegations of uh, of war crimes. You know they're they're shelling uh, Nikopol, which is right across uh, from the largest nuclear plant in in uh, in mm. Europe. So this is terrifying business. And I, I think we need to also acknowledge that Putin's in it for the long haul. He obviously doesn't care about the plight of his own people, his soldiers certainly not. Um, so what he's trying to do is to eliminate Ukraine as a, as a country. Now whether that's in one outright battle, which was his first plan that didn't work, um, he's now trying to dissect it. Uh, he's prepared, I think, to stay the course for years and basically break Ukraine uh, from what it was at least into something new that he can consider tolerable
2: how would he react to stories such as these with mcdonald's reopening and such and and you know the lighter side things the positive side how will he react to that
9: yeah, that's a great question. I, I personally don't think he cares very much at all about that stuff because he has, um, he has as I said, sort of geared for this to be years long. Uh, now, that could, of course, really backfire because his own economy is declining rapidly, a 4 to 6% decline in, in the GDP is predicted for, for the next year. Inflation's at 15%. So there are you know, worries, there should be worries inside the Russian leadership that, uh, you know, the people will eventually have enough, and his armed forces clearly need, you know, massive restructuring in order to, to pull this off. But um, I, I think it's too optimistic to assume that he's either, you know, sort of happy to settle for just the east, I think he's going to try to uh, exhaust the Ukrainian economy, the Ukrainian uh uh, people, you know, over a long and protracted war, and territorially he's already got these, but I think he'll try to make a case uh, for them to be fundamentally part of Russia. There's already administrative um, uh, procedures in place to, to make them part of, of the Russian Federation. And then also to sort of ebb away at the rest of Ukraine. He's, he's, got, uh, he's unassailable at home right now. That's the sad truth. So I don't think he really cares about McDonald's or about you and me or, or you know, obviously about the Ukrainian people. I think he's really at war to a large degree uh, with NATO and the EU. He's trying to challenge their power and authority, and Ukraine has ended up sort of as the chip in in that process.
2: And you alluded to this, but he still has the power of the citizenry of Russia. He, he
9: does and that's the sad truth now how long that lasts I, I know people you know are quite dismal about uh, when when they think about you know the Russian populace where they're not doing more and so on and I understand that uh, we shouldn't forget that this is a place which has seen more revolutions than most countries very dramatic ones um, and the economy is clearly in trouble and that's usually uh, you know, what people care about sooner or later. Uh, I think sooner or later, the the Russian people will start to accept that this is illegitimate and unnecessary in every single uh, uh, capacity. That's certainly my hope, and I think everybody's hope. Um, But yeah, for now, we've got to face the facts. He does not he does not face any sizable challenge from within, certainly not that we're aware of. That includes his own people, other people in, in government, um, and he's a dictator. This is a this is a, an authoritarian regime. He's playing his own game, um, so it is his war, but it is uh, you know the Russian people's war insofar as they're willing to tolerate it. And I think the end, if there is going to be an end game, um, you know that might actually have to come uh, courtesy of the Russian people, but that's a long way away. We're not seeing signs of that yet.
2: Dr. Arne Kislenko with us, uh, Margaret McMillan, Trinity One International Relations Program, Trinity College, University of Toronto, Department of History, Toronto Metropolitan University. Arne, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. You too.
0: Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News. Today's Talk 900 CHML.
2: We are where we are uh in this uh, global pandemic, living with it, uh, moving on, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and we might remember during the height of all of this, it was all about trying to get as many of us vaccinated as we possibly could. With that, um, became uh, I guess uh, came certain mandates and such. But now we are where we are, uh, over two years, two and a half years uh, out from this. City of Hamilton employees are no longer required to show proof of vaccination against COVID-19. City Council voted 9-4 to to scrap the vaccine policy for staff uh, members uh, at a meeting this morning. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, as well as Councillors Russ Powers, John Paul Danko, and Judy Partridge voted against it. Uh, To talk more about it and why they did, Esther Pauls is with us, Ward 7 Councillor, City of Hamilton. And on the line now... Esther, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
10: I am doing very well today. Thank
2: you, So, for so Esther, why, why remove this now? Why is this an issue now?
10: To remove it? Well, yes. Well, we have no mandate by the province. We were um, directed, actually, we had a meeting with the uh, staff medical officer, Elizabeth, they HR, to say do not uh, fire uh, uh, the employees. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, we're short of employees now, and uh, that was the recommendation. So why now? Now it's because we're living with COVID. There's no mandate by the province. Mm
5: -hmm. Nobody
10: asks everybody. When we go to football games, soccer games, wherever, Go grocery shopping, nobody's asking if you're vaccinated or not. That's a personal uh, choice for them. But we're not asking for that. So why should the city of Hamilton ask their employees their health, their health, uh, you know, uh, issues. It's private.
2: So just, the, and we all know the, you know, the discussion, the debate that's been going on since all of this started way back when. Um, does this mean the debate wasn't worth it, or it's just where we are now?
10: I, I think, uh, to tell you the truth, we found out that this would cost us a least 7.4 million, and that's just one union. We had many unions. We had a lot of people. Uh, you know You know what the problem was? I'll, I'll start it again. The problem is we never consider the cost. Hmm. The cost would be in the millions. And we owe it to our taxpayers to know that before we made a decision. So, as you know, I, was deb- I debated this continuum by uh, postponing until we had the figure. And we still didn't have the right figure because they estimated a seven for, uh, per million, but it's going to balloon with legal fees, with other people suing us, non-union. So I think that had to do a part of it, too. But my, my uh, concern was that there was no mandate anywhere else. So mm-hmm. why should the city of Hamilton impose this on our city workers?
2: So, do you think ultimately it was money that that made the decision here, or just the fact that the I, virus is where it is, and most people have had it or there's experienced herd immunity or herd immunity rather, yes. and 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 have moved on?
10: I I really believe that money is a factor. Yeah, uh, you know all the issues that's happening in Hamilton, and if money wasn't a factor, then where what are we? saying to our taxpayers of course it's the money and of course also it's because we're going into our third year you know and uh, we are at a position now that everybody makes their decision if you're sick you stay home we have to live with it that's what everybody's saying that's what the doctors are saying so I think that we have to move on but uh, but Scott it's been a roller coaster for our employees there's going to be a lot of healing that has to come about uh, with these employees because they've been on a roller coaster for about four, uh, five months, and uh, and it's been hard on them.
2: That's my next question, Esther. Is uh, what's been the response or the reaction to this decision? What's that been like? Does that um, help things, or does that just add to the to the misery in some way? Well,
10: I want to tell you, Scott. I've had that literally. Uh, Hundreds of emails thanking me, of course, because Mm -hmm. I kept it in the forefront because I believed in it. I I, I was debating it all the time. I think my counselors uh, were getting tired of me, actually. But I'm just saying that their mental anguish was unbelievable. When they would call me or email, I felt it for them. And I wasn't affected. But they, they, I mean, I, I had my job, but they thought, they would lose their jobs. They would lose the ability to pay them more than this. And it was so heart wrenching. So it's going to take time to heal, uh, I believe. But I hope the city now can come together and realize that this is behind us and we will move on with stronger employees. That these CIF employees will, they love working for the city and that they'll work together. Uh, and that's my hope.
2: Um, what do you think we've learned from this experience? Um, what do you take away from all this stuff, Esther, two and a half years out?
10: What I've learned, I've learned, uh, to tell you the truth, that uh, things change. And we, as politicians, have to change as well. If uh, It's been two and a half years. At the beginning, Scott, we were all scared. We Remember, we couldn't even go outside mm-hmm, and play in mm-hmm. playgrounds. You know, our groceries, we were delivered and washed. We were so scared, but we've learned so much about COVID now that we have to change our, 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 the way we behave now because we know what COVID is like. We take care of ourselves, and I've learned that uh, people have the right to choose. They really do, to take a medicine for them. for their. They, they know their issue. I don't know their issue. So I think uh, I've learned that... Uh, uh, freedom of choice is so important uh, uh, for me, and I think people have learned that.
2: Let me play devil's advocate here with you, Esther, and we've only got a few seconds left. What do you say to people that said, well, mo- the, most of us, or the majority of us got it. Why didn't everybody just get it? What do you say to those people?
10: What do I say to those people? They chose to get it, right? Did they do it because they had to, you're saying? Or did they choose because they really believed that it was good for them? They had a choice. Don't you think? Did yeah. We, put a, we didn't put a gun in there. Well, or, some
2: may say, well, it was made mandatory, so, you know, I had to do it, it so sort to of speak. But Well, yeah.
10: the thing is, if, if, they, if they then, if they still had, had a choice. Yeah, these, yeah. 400, 500 people that we had, they, mm-hmm. some of them, I think it went down to about 300 and something, they made the choice to stand up till the end, and good for them. And the ones that chose to take it, they still had a choice. And you're saying, what do we say to them? I thought it was for your own safety. When I take medicine, I take it for my own safety. And it's proven. It's proven now, Scott, that if you are vaccinated, even three, four, four vaccines, you could spread it. And that yep, wasn't no, so that's what it's all That's
2: true. So, Esther Paul's with us. Ward Seven, or, uh, ward seven councillor for the city of Hamilton. Good for standing up for what you believe in, Esther. Uh, man, that's uh, not many do that nowadays. Esther Paul's Ward Seven councillor, uh, city of Hamilton employees no longer have to rec- uh, no longer required to show proof of vaccination for employment. Esther, thanks for the time. Be well.
0: Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Tony is on the line. Tony, what are your thoughts?
11: Oh, hey Scott, how's it going? Could you? I'm doing all, I'm doing all right. Uh a lot of the mental anguish lifted today. I just wanted to say a huge shout out to uh Esther Pauls. Uh there's a lot of us who really super appreciate the amount of uh work she's done in the trenches for us and uh and uh just Esther Pauls if you're still listening, thank you so much. We love you. We really appreciate what you've done. You, All right, man.
2: I'm going to ask you the obvious question, Tony. Because you know, and I'm playing that devil's advocate here. I, you know, it's up to you what you do, but um, many will say everybody else did it. Why didn't you just do it? Um, get
11: the shot, oh, Scott. I had a, I had a bunch of. I've never been an anti-vaxer, as mm-hmm. some uh, some people in that council might want to call us. But uh, um, I don't know. Just you know, so me personally, uh, my biggest red flag was when they first came out with this situation. Uh, they were saying that it was even safe for pregnant women and, uh, and, uh, unborn children and, you know, for, uh, pregnant women to take the shot. And then I was like, well, wait a minute, if they haven't actually had a pregnant woman get the shot, go to term and have, uh, have a pregnancy, like, uh, have a baby, how can they say that? And then there's the seventy thousand in the seventy thousand documents where they're at about thirty, I think, so far that the judge mandated they that that they release. Uh, they've even said point blank in those documents that they didn't know and they 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 didn't actually know what the results would have been for. Uh, so
2: safety safety still a concern for you, Tony.
11: That's the thing, and yeah. one thing okay. that, that that bothers me too is uh, with all with all of what's going on and. Uh, Now I hear that I was there in person. I heard some of the counselors saying that they were shouting out to the 85% that got voluntarily vaccinated. I just wanted to say that I thought that might have been a joke because how many of those numbers got vaccinated after the mandates and they feared being Mm, terminated? Um, Like, you know, a great way to inflate your numbers to justify your position. Because I personally know uh, at least four or five people that I've spoken with that that held out as long as possible, and they, they were under so much mental anguish from being terminated that they went and got it done. So are they considered voluntary? I don't right. think that you can just take the entire number of people that got vaccinated and claim that they all did it voluntarily mm. and then praise them. I think a lot of those people are going to be very angry that they were forced to do it uh, by having their jobs threatened.
2: I mean, all right, thanks for the call, Tony. Much appreciated, thanks, and thanks appreciate for, uh, thanks. all right, and we appreciate you uh, giving us your opinion. Let's bring in Dr. Rodney Rohde. He's a professor, chair, clinical laboratory science program, College of Health Physicians, or Professions, rather, at Texas State University. The Center for D- Disease Control in the United States has dropped their COVID-19 recommendations like social distancing, quarantining, screening, et cetera, and he is with us now. Rodney, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
12: Hey Scott, it's great to be back on. It's been a while.
2: Yeah, it has been a long while. So give us an update. Where is the US right now with all of this?
12: Yeah, so I think the US is uh, you know, in a state right now, when you mentioned the C D C switching their guidelines, I think they're just acknowledging the fact that most people are moving to that anyway. I've always said that the pandemic will start shifting into a you know, an end phase when the people kind of say it is, even if it's not. The virus isn't through with us yet, obviously, but I think CDC is acknowledging the fact that they need to move to a stance. They're still supporting vaccination. They're still supporting uh, masking when positive and when you know you're positive. And they're still recommending those those protocols for masking and distancing. Uh, as you know as as Scott, one of the things I often talk to people about is for me, this has always been about a personal decision. Whether you have the flu, a cold, or anything else, you know, one should, if they are able to, stay away from people. And so I think the CDC is kind of moving to that stance. The biggest thing I think that, um, you know, we might mention is that they're now moving to a, if you have been exposed to a person who has COVID, mm-hmm. uh, that you are moving basically to masking up and not having to isolate or stay at home.
2: So how much of this, uh, Rodney, has to do with the fact that just so many people have had it by now?
12: Yeah, and and that's another point I was going to bring up, is that I looked that up this afternoon before the show. The United States now is uh, reporting about about 80% of the citizens have had at least one vaccination. Almost 70% would be considered fully vaccinated with two doses. And then when you throw in the number of people who have gone through the infection or had both, the vaccine and the infection, you know, I would imagine we're in the high 80th or even uh, or low 90 percentile of some type of immunity to the virus at this point.
2: Rodney, how concerned are you about the fall and something else happening to trigger this again?
12: Well, as a virologist, you know, I'm always going to say we have to keep at least our head in the game and watching what's happening through surveillance of testing and watching what's happening on the ground, because it is an RNA virus. And we've talked about this before, they're the most diabolical of viruses because they love to mutate, and COVID has certainly shown us that it's going to continue to do so. We've been lucky, I would say, in the past six months that even though we've seen B4 and B5 be, you know, some of the most transmissible variants, it has not caused the type of mortality and morbidity that we, you know, could see, and so as long as we have spikes in mortality or spikes in severe illness, I think we can go into it with a bit of of caution and hope and I you know I think we're okay you know most schools most employers kind of know the game now and hopefully everyone will be ready to to pivot if that is needed I think right now like many places the United States is is watching monkeypox as well that's not quite as worrisome from my standpoint of the infectiousness of the virus and how it's transmitted but I think that's shifted some of the attention obviously around the world
2: Dr. Rodney Rohde with us, Professor Chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Professions, Texas State University, giving us an update on what's going on south of the border and the CDC dropping uh, some of their COVID-19 recommendations. Uh, Rodney, as always, thanks so much for the time. We'll chat again soon. Be well.
12: Thanks again, Scott. Take care.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Alright, uh, you've no doubt heard by now that, um, the, uh, the premier of, uh, the province was, uh, out and about today. Uh, and of course, uh, whenever he talks about anything, he takes some Q&A from the reporters. Uh and I was watching it live when it all went down and uh as sometimes sometimes happens this time of the year the insects are flying around and uh if you're unlucky like the the premier was uh earlier on today he inhaled a bee and down it went and uh here was the moment it happened it's
4: coming from the health sector
0: Christ. What
4: was that? I just swallowed a bee. Oh, my goodness. Christ, God. I knew that little bugger.
0: You
4: <laughs> okay? I'm good. He's down here buzzing around right now. He has, a lot of, he has a lot of real estate. Now, if that was in the clip, okay, this is going to be replayed over and over again. And that just made Colin DeMello's day. He's going to be laughing all the way back to the scene. I've already tweeted it. Holy Christ, he's, he's
2: wedged in my throat. Sorry, guys. And I think that was Colin that was saying, I've already tweeted it. Uh, anyway, let's bring in Colin DeMello, our Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Global News, uh, who not only witnessed all of this, but got a shout-out from the premier today. Uh, Colin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I hope you didn't get stung.
3: No, I, I, I'm bee-free, thankfully.
2: <laughs> bee-free. Good for you. So uh, what was the reaction when this went down? Was it as hilarious for everybody there as it was here? Um, uh, you know, I guess it happens.
3: Yeah, yeah it was it was not only hilarious it was also uh, you know a, a bit of a stunning moment right so we were all talking about the healthcare system about privatization so all of us were really zoned in and and really serious um some of it, like i was looking down at my phone at that moment and all of a sudden i look up and and the premier's choking he seems to be digging something out of his mouth which is why i asked him what was that and he said a bee a bee just you know i just swallowed a bee Um, And and if you take a look at the video, you can see, you know, the bee kind of is uh, swirling around him. It lands on his lip. It gets off again. It swirls around him. And then it just goes in, It just flies (laughs) right in. And I think the premier, in trying to get it out, accidentally sucked in.
4: Oh, um, man. Then
3: he started complaining about the bee being in his throat. Then he started complaining about the bee being in his belly. Um, and I mean, you know, all credit goes to the premier, because if that was me, I would have like shut it down. I would have walked <laughs> away. I would have maybe gone somewhere to figure out, do I need to get this something out? What's it going to do in there? Um, but he, <laughs> really? he, he kind of took it all in stride and then kept taking questions after while joking about this bee build, building a hive in his belly.
2: And he gives you a shout out. What's the relationship like between the press and this guy? I mean, what's it like for you guys that having girls that have to stand there and do this every day?
3: Well, sometimes the relationship is, you know, pretty jovial and sometimes it's not. I mean, you know, a lot of times with the government, there tends to be a bit of a a thornier relationship with the the media because, you know, often we're the ones uh, tasked with asking them a lot of questions. Today, though, I think the reason he said my name in particular was because I was the one who had asked him, you know, Mm. what was that? And I was the one who had asked him, are you okay? And I was actually, I kept telling the premier, you know, take five minutes if you need, like, we'll wait, it's not a problem, but take five minutes if you need to figure out what's going on with this bee. But he just said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Um, he did mention that I'd be laughing all the way back home. We were actually in Dundalk, Ontario, which is a little bit North of Orangeville. Um, and you know, really for the 90 minute drive from there back to Queens park, I was laughing. I'm laughing because it was a pretty funny moment. Um, You know, we're glad that the premier is okay, but just just to think of the ridiculousness of it. Like, when have you ever thought or even heard or seen a a bee in, in in a live news conference deciding to just slip its way into the into the mouth of a politician? I don't think we'll ever see a moment like that ever again. I hope not, but it was a pretty surreal moment.
2: (laughs) And you were there and got it all. Good for you. Uh, Colin DeMello with us, our our Queen's Park Bureau Chief, uh, talking about uh, the Premier today, um, unknowingly just inhaling a bee, and the rest is history, as they say. Colin, thanks for the time. Thanks for being a good sport. Have a great weekend. Thanks for having me. Lots to talk about uh, in regard to uh, City Hall earlier on today, talking about uh, how the mandatory vaccination has been dropped. Now, uh, as of Wednesday, the Public Works Committee unanimously signed off on a plan to designate sections of both Main Street and King Streets as community safety zones. Uh, That designation means higher penalties for those caught speeding in those zones. To talk more about all of this, Narendra Dan is with us, counselor for Ward 3, City of Hamilton, and chair of City Works, and is with us now. Rinder, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
7: My pleasure. Friday, Scott.
2: <laughs> I know. I hear you. I hear you. Thank goodness. Uh, obviously, road safety has been an issue in and around Hamilton for a while now. The discussion of two-way streets and and buffer zones and this sort of thing, obviously, pedestrian uh, uh, injury and, and such have been a concern. What is this going to do? How is this going to help?
7: Yeah, so uh, pedestrian fatality on top of injury. So the reality at the end of the day is that this is going to see a continuity of lane designated lanes along Main Street and King Street. So in portions of both of those major arterial roads, we have up to five lanes. Um, So we're going to see a reduction down to four lanes in order to maintain continuity. And what that enables us to do as a municipality on top of, lane reduction, is uh, uh, implement our automated speed enforcement cameras. So the technology has not been able to be applied to both of those arterial roads to date because Mm. the cameras actually don't cover five lanes. Um, So in order to bring enforcement, which was another major public outcry from many residents who live along those entire communities along the stretch, is councillors, city even to police, we need enforcement. People are speeding on these roadways. How do we make sure enforcement happens? And I think that this is the best solution in terms of automated speed enforcement cameras. It's uh, cost efficient in terms of operations at the end of the day for the municipality. And once those cameras are up, um, they they automatically do their job and bring some accountability to the aggressive uh speeding that's happening on these roadways
2: so they do not work uh with five lanes but they work with four lanes is that accurate accurate wow that's interesting so um um how many cameras what are we talking about uh, along these zones is that the sort of thing you can share
7: I don't have the details in terms of the number of cameras and uh, when they'll be deployed. Uh, What I do know is the city currently has two of them and they're currently roaming uh, between other community safety zones. In fact, I think we have one up and going in Ward 3 along Victoria um, Avenue right now as well. And the goal would be uh, to make sure that we're making efficient use uh, within each designated community zone. Uh, the new ones are basically from Dundurn all the way over to Lottridge. Uh So one, hmm. uh, so, a couple in Ward 1 and then a couple in Ward 3. So particularly the stretch between Gage and King for me. And then uh, Gage and Lottridge, uh as well. And then in Ward 1, it would be Lock to Dundurn and then Dundurn to Queen. And the reason that those stretches have been identified is because they are... Um, their proximity to other community safety zone appropriate facilities. So schools, playgrounds, that kind of thing. Um, And, you know, we have to work within the traffic uh, guidelines and regulations at the end of the day. So this is what we're going to do.
2: So these, once they're, uh, are are they moved around within those regions, within those areas once they're installed or are they permanently affixed in those locations forever? Um, And at any given time, is there at least one along these stretches?
7: Yeah, so coming in October, we'll see them on Main and on King. And then they will be an operation in operation in Q1 of 2023. Right. And then in terms of the Dundurn and Gage to Lotridge, Dundurn to Queen, Queen and Gage to Lawtridge, we'll see those roll out also in the early new year.
2: And are they, sorry, are they mobile or do they, or do they stay in one location? They
7: become fixed. So yeah. they become fixed to a location. Um, and so it'll be somewhere in that wide range. Yeah. <laughs> um, we don't disclose the exact location where they are fixed because the whole point of this isn't to, to tip. It's not just about you know tipping off residents about where they are. It's about fundamentally about enforcing um, bad driver behavior.
2: But I guess what I'm saying is, can they be moved around?
7: Yes, they can. Sorry, okay. Scott. Yeah, Sorry yeah. for not understanding your question No, no, earlier. no. It's my fault. My yeah. fault. <laughs> no problem.
2: So they will uh, be moved around to various spots, and nobody will know where they are until, obviously, they get caught.
7: That's right. So there will be a clear coming soon sign that will be yeah. installed to uh, notify within the regulation requirements, and then the cameras can move along the street.
2: And that's another thing, too, is they you have to put up signs that say you're entering this area. Is that accurate?
7: Yeah. So the province, when they set up the regulations for the automated speed enforcement cameras, rec- added this requirement that uh, municipalities have to inform the local community about uh, the cameras being put in place, and they stipulated that those that that it that uh, notice has to happen right directly on the roadway.
2: Hmm. So obviously, no excuse here.
7: No excuse here. You got to slow down. If you're not going to slow down, you're going to get caught and you're going to get fined.
2: Narendra Nan with his counselor for Ward 3, City of Hamilton, talking about new, uh, safety zones that are going to be set up along Main and King, complete with speed, co- uh, speed zone cameras. Uh, Narendra, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend.
7: Take care. You too. Thompson isn't
0: satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News. Today's Talk, nine hundred CHML.
2: And one of the big stories yesterday, and still an ongoing issue, is uh, a massive power outage in downtown Toronto. uh And apparently, this um, I guess caused by a crane who knocked out a major power line, and the rest is history, as they say. How vulnerable are our our are our cities and are we prepared for backup when something like this happens let's bring in maddie cmatici director of infrastructure institute uh, professor of geography and planning with the university of toronto and is with us now maddie thanks for the time i hope you're well
13: yeah hi scott it's nice to be with you
2: so are you surprised that apparently one crane took out all of uh, downtown toronto or a good portion of it and uh, something serious that's taken a while to repair
13: it seems surprising doesn't it that one crane and one incident in one part of the city can knock out power for such a massive area and for so many people but when you think about how our electricity grids uh, and how our infrastructure systems more broadly are set up it starts to make sense We tend to use a hub and spoke model uh, where there's a hub where much of the energy is produced or where a lot of the activity uh, takes place, whether it's for water treatment or uh, for other services, and then they get distributed outwards. And so if you have some type of strike on a main line or at the source, uh, at the hub, that can really start to ripple out and cause major impacts throughout the entire system.
2: Talk about this line and what happened.
13: Well, this one, I don't have all the details on this one, but it just speaks to a long line of events that have happened, starting with uh, the 2003 blackout in this region and all across uh, the Northeast seaboard uh, that knocked out power uh, for a number of days. Uh, then we've had blackouts uh, from time to time uh, over the uh, intervening years and now through to uh, yesterday. And this is just one in a wide variety of, of uh, blackouts. I mean, we had uh, the the wireless uh, Rogers blackout just a few right. months ago. Uh, then, uh, and we've had other types of incidents from wind and heavy rain uh, that knock out uh, transportation. So it's really been just a litany where we're starting to learn how vulnerable our infrastructure systems are. Uh,
2: We are more and more dependent on electricity these days. It seems like we are going to be in the future. You talked about uh, your devices and, and losing contact with them. Should there be more redundancy in these systems?
13: Redundancy is key, so that there's backup in the systems. Uh, there's been a lot of thought about this, whether certain types of uh, uh, high-risk infrastructure does have uh, backups uh, for energy, like our hospitals. Uh, but also now, a lot of uh, apartment buildings and even houses are starting to get generators. There's even been a plan to think about your electric vehicle. That as more people get them, maybe those could serve as a as a generator uh, that feeds electricity back to the house uh, for a short period of time. If there's ever uh, a knockout of power. So we are starting to think about redundancies. We also have to think about resilience so that when these events do happen, and they are going to happen for all sorts of reasons, we can bounce back faster, they can be restored quicker, or we can uh, reorient power or other infrastructure so that our systems can get back up and running quicker.
2: We remember brownouts of a decade or two ago and, and how that was an issue. What is the health of our power system, our power grid?
13: Well, a lot of this is about continued investment into our infrastructure systems. And that and that's the key. I mean, there's things like pruning to make sure that when there are windstorms, the, the, the wires aren't quite as uh, vulnerable and other investments uh, to upkeep uh, the existing infrastructure. When it comes to infrastructure, upkeep and maintenance is really critical. In this region, we often talk so much about the big mega project investments and picking priorities. And we uh, we get really fixated on which big project is going to go first and who's going to benefit. But when it comes to infrastructure, state of good repair uh ongoing investment in operations and maintenance day after day, month after month, year after year is so critical to make sure that these systems really function uh, in the long term.
2: Who would pay for something like this in the
13: end? So, these, so the investment uh, comes from rate payers uh, to keep the infrastructure in place. And in some cases, they get government subsidies uh, to make sure that uh, the core infrastructure is there, too. So there's uh, there's really only one payer, whether it's coming through our taxes or whether it's coming through user fees, we have to pay. And this does then uh, connect up with uh, the, the cost of living crisis and inflation that everyone is feeling uh, the squeeze at the moment. Uh, and this is leading to uh, pressure to drop rates or drop fees uh, or drop taxes. Uh, And when that happens, uh, there often can be delays in infrastructure investment, the ongoing operation and maintenance is either is often one of the first places that gets cut because you may not see an impact. Right away, mm. but it does start to have long term impacts. So, in a moment like this, where we are in an inflationary crisis, we really need to continue to focus on investing in the ongoing operations and, and state of good repair of our infrastructure.
2: It appears this uh, situation, not from nature, not from lack of maintenance, but from somebody accidentally knocking something they shouldn't have knocked, a private contractor per se. Who would pay for an accident like that?
13: You know th- that one is going to be under investigation and we'll still then have to see i mean who was really mm. at fault and is there uh the legal power to go to go and, and try to prosecute and uh, uh collect on on all of the impact i mean you can just think of the financial implications of mm. uh, a blackout uh just le- similarly with the rogers outage and how much uh cost there was there and uh you know calls for now uh greater regulation around outages and having to switch over to other service providers much more quickly so uh, there will be investigations to understand what role that crane operator played and how uh, and that company played uh, and whether and and what imp- impact that had on the system and who was ultimately responsible and then whether there's a financial penalty uh, for that outcome
2: will we learn something from this are there lessons to be learned from from these sort of experiences
13: I think the lesson uh, to be learned is how how much we all depend on uh, on our infrastructure. Uh, today, it's electricity, and we're talking about electricity. Uh, last month or recently, it was our wireless. Uh, then sometimes it's our transportation. Then it's our water systems. We're so dependent. And, you know, these are services that uh, we just expect to work. You flip the light switch and you expect mm. the lights to come on. Uh, you turn on the taps and you expect water to come out. And you don't really think too, too much about what's going on behind the walls or under the ground in the pipe. And and we learn only when there's these outages or these shock moments, whether they're human caused or weather related, uh, that we're really we can be quite vulnerable and we need to be doing everything we can to make sure there's both redundancies and resiliency in our system.
2: Lots of chatter about um, renewables and moving forward. Obviously, Ontario's nuclear program is coming towards the end of its shelf life. How much more can we get out of this? Uh, Is it worth building new facilities like this?
13: Well, we continue to invest in our nuclear and in in upgrading uh, the facilities to extend uh, their lifespan. That's one of the biggest mega projects that's uh, going on uh, in our province. And we also do then discuss and debate about renewables, wind, uh, solar uh, and and others. That gets us thinking about that idea of distributed energy that uh, in some cases that these um, renewables are in very large sites and they're very large facilities. Other times we're thinking about smaller scale, more distributed systems. that get away from that hub and spoke type of model and try to distribute uh, where the energy uh, production is and how it's transmitted so that it's a much shorter line so that if there is a crane strike on one part of of, of the system, it doesn't have as much of a knock-on effect uh, throughout the rest of the system. So renewables are certainly being explored uh, but they also face uh, some of the pushback from communities in some cases and ensuring that the cost uh, is competitive as well.
2: Is Ontario or Canada ready for EVs? Lots of EV plans coming online in the next little while lots of plans towards that are we ready
13: we're going to need much more electricity over time if we're going to get to uh, replacing uh, our combustion engine fleet with uh, electric vehicles. Uh, and that's, and again, it comes back to how is that electricity going to be provided and how is it going? To, how is it going to be distributed? I mean, you think about what would happen if if all uh, if the charging, if all of our vehicles were electric and the charging system went down for some period of time, that could be a major strike on mm-hmm. the efficiency and safety of our uh, communities. So that has to be considered. And again, when we come back to our wireless. Uh, what happens when our cars are driverless and they're, they're they're communicating with each other over the wireless network what happens if that system goes down in terms of safety and in terms of people being able to move in the state of our economy so these are all the types of issues that people are uh, thinking through and they're really critical to address because our infrastructure now all of our infrastructure systems are essentially i.t services as well they have it and they depend on high levels of electricity and power to make them run so really all of this is so deeply integrated and we have to be thinking about it as a network and as an integrated system.
2: Maddie Siematicke with us, director of the Infrastructure Institute and professor of geography and planning with the University of Toronto, talking about the power outage Toronto experienced yesterday and is still recovering from. Maddie, fascinating topic. Thanks for the time. Be well.
0: Thanks, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Lots of city news this week. Hamilton City Council voting to scrap uh, 9 to 4 to scrap the vaccine policy for staff. Uh, Talking to us now, Mayor Fred Eisenberger, City of Hamilton, voted against the move to get his take. He is with us now. Fred, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
14: Uh, I am indeed, Scott. Thank you.
2: Your thoughts on this vote and all of this happening now. Why now?
14: Well, I'm disappointed that uh, that we have scrapped this, uh, you know, mandate that uh, you know put the onus on uh, city city staff to get vaccinated. Uh, I've spent the better part of uh, two years encouraging people to uh, to do the right thing on on behalf of themselves, their community, their families, uh, to curb the uh, the COVID nineteen spread and keep people safe. And uh, I think the City of Hamilton had a responsibility to uh, provide a health and safe. Uh, work environment. So I uh, continue to support the mandates, but uh, obviously a majority of members of council did not. And uh, you know, the why now is an interesting question. Uh, you know, obviously uh, I, I'm not running for office. Uh, I think some other members of council are, and uh, I suspect they didn't want this to be a uh, an election issue, particularly. And it was a, a bit of an anomaly vote that got this into place in the first place, uh, because of a lack of attendance at a particular meeting, the majority uh, that was in attendance actually supported uh, voted to support the, uh, the mm. continuing mandates. I was one of them, and, and many other members of council were as well. So there's been a change of uh, mood. I, you know I think there's uh, you know a changing dynamic certainly out in the broader community, but I would continue to stress that uh, people need to take their first and second doses, and the uptake on the third and fourth doses has been dramatically low. And that's a worry. And, uh, you know, the the advice from our medical officer of health remains that the vaccine is the way forward to protect oneself from uh, serious harm from this uh, illness and, you know, and future variants that uh, are likely to come our way, uh, you know, potentially in the fall
2: and obviously we want to encourage everybody to get vaccinated and keep their boosters up to date and such does this come down to money fred in the sense that there's you know it's not mandatory in the province and this could lead to legal ramifications
14: well could do and on, on both sides of the equation i would uh, submit uh... you know on on the on the one side uh... folks that are, uh, that, are that would be let go would grieve it and maybe uh, you know uh, provide legal challenges and there may be severance costs associated with that I I thought that was a cost that, uh, you know, I I was certainly prepared to bear on behalf of the taxpayers. And, and, you know, the vast majority of the population, I think, agrees that, uh, you know, people need to get vaccinated. And that's why the, you know, the first and second dose vaccination numbers are, you know, in the 90 percentile range. Uh, On the other hand, uh, you know, there are be folks that are vaccinated that could also potentially legally challenge the fact that they're, uh, you know, at work with people that are unvaccinated now and, uh, you know, that is not exactly providing a healthy and safe work environment. So there's potential legal challenges on both sides. And, uh, you know, I'd say that, uh, you know, ne- neither one side is uh, is immune from legal challenges. And I, I, I'm i not that I'm encouraging legal challenges. I don't want that. But uh, the reality is that, uh, you know, that could be challenged either way.
2: Will there be repercussions because of this decision today?
14: don't know and uh, you know we'll, we'll we'll wait and see uh obviously uh, you know it's 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 in some respects it's uh there's been a, a dramatic decline in the number of people that have either refused to tell us uh, whether they've been vaccinated or whether they've been vaccinated as a city employee so some 8000 uh city employees have done the right thing and have uh, you know taken that sense of responsibility on behalf of their their families, their themselves, and and their, their work community for sure, and the broader community as well. And right now, we're down to 250 employees that have not. Uh, that that's down from some 600 when the the, the original mandates, uh, you know, were put in place. So we've uh, we've made some dramatic improvements in terms of the folks that have decided that uh, that they should be vaccinated. And uh, for the 250, we'll see what happens down the road. And uh, you know, if there are ramifications uh, i know i know there's disappointment on behalf of uh, many in the uh, the city of hamilton employed that uh, also felt that uh, you know everyone needed to do their part and uh, certainly i, I don't uh, encourage ramifications but uh, don't know yet if they're going if there are going to be any
2: fred eisenberger with us mayor for the city of hamilton council voting nine to four to scrap the vaccine policy for staff moving forward fred as always thanks so much for the time be well have a great weekend
14: pleasure scott thank you very much and uh, you and your listeners as well be a safe weekend thank you thanks for
0: listening to the hamilton today podcast you can listen to the show live week afternoons from three to six on 900 chml and online at 900 chml.com
2: that's it for us thanks for listening As always greatly appreciated thanks to the two wills for producing and diane in the newsroom as always we leave it to you the taxpaying customer to have the last word Holy Christ,
4: I
0: just swallowed a beef. This has been a Canadian Heritage Moment.
2: <laughs> yes.